That revolutionary optimism for an artist is really essential because you have to believe that even with all the great art that has existed, that you have something to give the world as well. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre-Carl Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, I'm excited to bring you my interview with a wonderful actor and UNCSA alumnus, Stephen McKinley Henderson. Stephen has a resume that most actors in his generation would, and probably do, envy. Trained first at Juilliard and then at UNCSA, he has been working steadily on stage for more than four decades, performing in classical and contemporary plays and theaters around the country. In 1996, he originated the role of Turnbow in August Wilson's Jitney in Pittsburgh, and then went on to play the part many more times around the country, including in a hugely successful off-Broadway run that netted him a Drama Desk Award. Now, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a Stephen McKinley Henderson fanboy. I, I worked at the Marte Perform in L.A. when Jitney ran there, and Stephen's performance is indelibly etched in my memory because I got to see it several times. But there's something about him. It's true whenever he appears on stage or on screen. He's just one of those actors who walks on stage or into the frame and you think, huh, I'm just going to watch this person for a while. There is a special something, whatever you want to call it. And then he does his work, his acting magic, and it's spellbinding. His work is always honest, precise, and commanding. Okay, enough of the fanboy. Back to business. Stephen eventually played Turnbow at the National Theatre in London in 2001, in a production that won Jitney the Olivia Award for Best Play. Since then, he has appeared on Broadway several more times, including in two August Wilson plays, King Hedley II and Fences, earning a Tony nomination for Best Supporting Actor in the latter. In recent years, Stephen has also amassed an impressive film resume. When Denzel Washington directed Fences for the screen, he asked his Broadway castmate Stephen to reprise his role in the film adaptation. Between 2016 and 2017 alone, Stephen was featured in three films that were nominated for the Best Picture Oscar, Fences, Manchester by the Sea, and Lady Bird. Later this year, he'll appear in one of the most anticipated films of recent years, Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Dune. And he recently wrapped filming in horror auteur Ari Aster's latest film, Disappointment Boulevard, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Stephen spoke to me from his home in Buffalo, New York. I asked him if, given that in his youth he left Juilliard to pursue activism in his hometown of Kansas City, he eventually had to choose between his activism and his art, or whether the two were always inextricably intertwined. Well, they're definitely, uh, definitely intertwined. And, um, and I must say, it was my childhood that came a calling, finally, when I was at Juilliard, uh, and I was quite happy to be studying uh, at the time. And my dear friend, who, who, who became my dear friend and, and mentor to some extent, uh, Miri Baraka, uh, the poet, polemicist, and activist, he was very instrumental. We, we worked together in Kansas City, in my hometown. And I told him then, uh, when I met him, that I would be in New York because I'm studying at the, at the Juilliard School. And I asked him if uh, 
that was relevant at the time. It was 1968, and I said, I'm studying Shakespeare and Chekhov and all this and that. And he said, oh, he said, that's that's wonderful, brother. He said, that's that's fabulous. Just don't let them let you lose your naturalness. He said, as long as you're working on the great, you know, uh, writers and, and, and learning your craft and becoming more and more expressive as an actor, there's nothing amiss with that. And uh, just don't lose your naturalness. And I understood what he meant at the time. I really did, uh, because there were a few people who we both knew, actors who had left their homes and suddenly developed a British accent and so forth. And we were raising money to pay the bail for someone uh, who had been arrested for activism and at the time. And so I knew that that there was no conflict between training as an artist in the classics and remaining uh, a part of what was going on in in the streets. But I had personal things in the family. And then there became a time when the pettiness that surrounded the training, um, some of the competitiveness and some of the uh, needless backstabbing and so on and so forth, some of that, which made it impossible for me to justify the strain it was on myself and my family for me to be there in New York. But to, so I just I just want to make it clear that I didn't necessarily think that I couldn't train as an artist and remain politically conscious and, and effective. Uh, but it it was it was a lot of personal family. A weight that uh, that made it impossible. And I'll tell you the other thing, if you don't mind, I, I, I may be, you know, it takes a bit of time to say this. Sure. But I suffered from uh, survivor guilt. My brother, my older brother was uh, deaf. I had a, a younger sister with monostenia gravis who was just developing, and they didn't really realize what it was. So they were treating her for multiple sclerosis, and they were treating her for other things before they found out what was really there. So anyway, I felt survivor guilt. I I, I had a, a sense, I mean, my brother, my older brother was doing fine in, in, in his world. He, he was quite something. He was my hero. But I just felt that survivor guilt, and I, I sometimes felt, why me? Why Why should I be doing so well, or why should I have a, a scholarship to come to New York and study in the first class of, you know, of actors at Juilliard? So it was personal mental stress that really caused me to leave that opportunity. And I did indeed go to and embrace the, the political climate of the times, which also made me realize that, well, you know, I needed to be doing something I felt a bit more uh, relevant or something that I could justify being healthy. How did you decide then to recommit to your acting career? Well, I didn't feel complete. I wasn't, I wasn't whole. I loved the craft. I loved the theater and I, and I loved acting. And uh, a friend of mine uh, who was at the school of the arts said, uh, you should come down here and, uh, and audition for the school. And uh, I said, well, I, I could, I could get there, but I don't have, I don't have round trip fare. 
I have to get on a bus and come there. He said, we'll do it because you'll get in. <laughs> so I did. I took the last money I had, bought a bus ticket, and went to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, auditioned and, uh, and got in the school there. And prior to that, I have to say, uh, I was in the Western Missouri Mental Health Center. I had convinced myself that I, I was in a wheelchair. And I, could, I had convinced myself that I couldn't walk because when, uh, when they came to get me, because I had asked my grandmother, I said, I'm really, I, I'm, I'm having problems. I, I, I need to go and see about myself. So she called the Western Missouri Mental Health Center and said, my grandson wants to, you know, come in, be examined, get some help. But they sent the police out because it was the neighborhood we lived in and the times we lived in. And uh, they, they thought that there was uh, somebody out there going crazy and that my grandmother was in danger or something. So they came to get me and um, put me in a straitjacket and put a shotgun under my chin and use some language to make sure that, uh, you know, I, I, I understood that they were serious and that uh, oh that I, I shouldn't make any false moves as a saying it. So anyway, with a shotgun under my chin and in a straitjacket, they put me in the back of a police car and took me to the Western Missouri Mental Health Center. They didn't, they didn't come, you know, this is, uh, it was the wrong people to come to get me. I can tell you and anyway, but those are the times we're in and we're not far from sometimes today. But uh, so when I got there, uh, when they said no false moves, they put me in a wheelchair to take me into the center. And that wheelchair that I got out of the police car and into a wheelchair, and I didn't get out of that wheelchair for quite a few days because I felt this is the only way that they won't see me as a threat. So I was in that wheelchair and I, I'm telling you all this period to get to this point that one day I was sitting there and uh, uh, they brought a, a fellow in in a much more conventional way. Uh, he was brought in. Uh, I realized who got that kind of treatment that I got people who came from my neighborhood, but he came in and he was, Quoting Hamlet, he was he, but he was misquoting it. He was saying the words that he thought he knew from Hamlet's speech. I think it was, uh, "Oh, that this tutu solid flesh with with male thaw resolved into a dew, and that the everlasting had not fixed his cannons against self slaughter." One of one of the passages that I knew, and so it irked me terribly that he was saying it wrong. <laughs> and it just bothered me. I'm telling you, I got up and I went over to him and I started explaining the proper thing, you know, and, and that's when the people who had been attending me looked over and said, he got up, he walked and he's, cause I, I didn't talk very much either. I, I sat in the chair and I, in the wheelchair and I didn't talk, but now he said he's up, he's walking and he's quoting Shakespeare, you know, and he's, so then they said, well, well, maybe we can. And that's when I started to realize why I was there, because I, I came there to, to get myself straight. But once I went through that straitjacket and that shotgun, I, I went all the way to a whole other place. And then I realized where I had been, where I come from, you know, that I had been at the Juilliard School and all the, all this other stuff started coming back to me. And that was... Uh, the beginning of, of them being able to help me. And um, in one session, I mentioned to this uh, doctor, because he had a picture of William Bendix and Alan Ladd 
from uh, the movie The Blue Dahlia. Now, The Blue Dahlia was a, a film about a soldier coming back and having some mental problems. It was an early, early film that uh, explored the power of, um, you know, the, the, the shock of... Of PTSD before it was called that. Exactly, exactly. PTSD, exactly right. And it was a brilliant performance by William Bendix. And John Hausman happened to be a producer of the film. So when I saw the picture, and I knew John, you know, because of the Juilliard School, and he had directed me in, in King Lear and all, you know, as we were students, we did all these projects. And he was, he, John took, a, took an interest in me. He was very kind to me. And uh, so I, I told the doctor, I said, oh, this is a picture from the Blue Dahlia. And he says, oh, how do you recognize that? I said, well, you know, my friend John Hausman produced it. And he <laughs> said, he, he sort of looked at me like, oh, he's still delusional. You know? <laughs> he's, still, he's still a little off, you know what I mean? So I told him, I said, no, I, I really know him. He says, oh, okay. I said, well, you want, get him on the phone. I, I, I can call, I, you know. He says, I'm not going to bother you know, so anyhow, the next day I, I was insistent and uh, I said, yeah, you know, uh, you know, I know him. And now by this time, I was really ready to get out of there. But what I found out was I couldn't sign myself out. I, I, I was able to come in. All right. But because I came in under the circumstances that I did, it wasn't like I could say, oh, well, I feel better. Let me go home. How old are you at the time? About uh, 20, 21. Okay. I went to, to Juilliard at 19, so this was after two years there. So yeah, 20, about to be 21. So anyway, I uh, I said, let's get, get John on the phone. And finally, he, he said, okay, just to get you through this, get over this thing, I'm going to do this. And he called and he apologized profusely and everything and said, but I have a patient who think. And when uh, he said the name, John said, Oh, you horse's ass, Henderson, you horse's ass. But I, I remember quite well. What are you doing now? You know. So I told him what the circumstance was, and he, and he said, I will tell him that you know I have a position for you. He said, but I don't. You know that, right? I can't, you can't come back to the school. You can't any of that. But if this is the only way you can get out of the hospital, I will tell him. And he did exactly that. And so I got out. And uh, but I had nowhere to go. And that's when my friend who was at the North Carolina School of the Arts said, come down here and you'll get in. And I and I did. And it was a, a great salvation to me. Now, I must say I was a little rocky little by little, you know, being in an environment where I was working on plays and being in a very supportive, beautiful campus environment. And, and it was, you know, the young, the campus was young. I mean, what it is now is just astounding. It's wonderful. But it was a welcoming, and it certainly was my, uh, it was a healing for me. You know, I got to say, I love that thematically speaking, in terms of her life story, that it was Hamlet that was a crucial turning point for you at a young age. This play about putting on plays, about sanity, what is sane and what isn't. It's just, it's a beautiful story. So you mentioned uh, Amiri Baraka's advice to about naturalness. And I'm guessing back in 1968, there weren't as many young actors of color in conservatory programs as there are now. And that naturalness was probably defined by 
white teachers and white actors. What did it feel like to try to maintain your naturalness as a young black actor at the time? Well, you know, it's interesting. You, you, you're quite insightful what you said. Because at Juilliard at the time, there were only three of us um, actors of color. And um, Were there any teachers of color? No. I must say that would have been very helpful if there had been. It really would have been helpful. It was helpful that they did provide seats for us to go and see theater events that had people of color in uh, instrumental positions. And, and uh, we saw, I saw, you know, James Earl Jones and Great White Hope and, uh, and Moses Gunn in, in uh, Othello and, uh, and, you know, and other shows, uh, Bozeman and Lena. But it would have been extremely helpful had there been faculty of color. And I found out later, just in, in, in passing, talking with the great Lloyd Richards, that he said that he and James Baldwin had written a letter to the Juilliard School when they heard that, that a drama division was being founded and that it might be uh, helpful if they were planning on allowing artists of color to come, and they certainly were. In the letter, Lloyd told me, he says, this was not we were not applying for positions. We were simply saying it would be useful to have them there to help that transition. Otherwise, there would be some culture shock in that time because they knew times they were in. And later on, Lloyd did teach there, but not during the, the, the early years. Uh, Lloyd did a few classes, a few master classes, as have I now, uh, which I'm proud to say have, have done some master classes at the school, the only school I ever dropped out of. And I did a commencement address and received an honorary doctorate from the Juilliard School and, and have, have taught master classes there. At the time that I left, that was, would have seemed absolutely impossible to me. The remorse that I had uh, later, I thought perhaps that that was the greatest mistake of my life that someone would tell me. But actually, it was the only thing I could possibly do, it was, and it was finally uh, led me to the greatest healing. And the School of the Arts was that healing. And I can now say that I've delivered a commencement address and received an honorary doctorate from that school. So speaking of your Juilliard commencement, you said in that speech, in that beautiful speech, uh, I suggest in these conflicted, polarizing times that we require performing artists with fearless, revolutionary optimism. What do you mean by revolutionary optimism, and why do you think it's important for performing artists to exemplify well, it? Well, I got that from uh, from Amiri Baraka. Ah. And the last time I was with him, well, no, not the last time I was with him, but one of the last times I was with him, we were together in Brooklyn at the uh, Irondale, and we were doing an evening together, actually. Him interviewing me it was uh, quite an occasion for me. We were backstage before going out, and I said, hey, Amiri, you know, you've been a cultural nationalist, you've been a dialectical materialist, you've been a communist and a socialist, you've been, you know, all these things, you know, now what, what, do, you, what do you think of yourself as now? And he said, well, he said, I'm glad you asked me, brother. I, I think of myself as a revolutionary optimist, <laughs> because he said, in times like this, optimism is a revolutionary act, and he said, one of the things that we have to pass on and when we pass on to the young people about what came before them, when we talk about 
some of the horrible things that may have been done and some of the injustices, we have to make certain we pass on optimism with it. We can't just pass on the horrific information. We've got to make sure that it comes with a dose of optimism and to let them know that this is a heroic journey. He liked the quote that James Baldwin had, that we must make this journey through the world as nobly as we can. And the part of the nobility of moving through it, especially for African-Americans, but for all people and certainly for all artists, is to move through with that, that sense of nobility and an optimism, a revolutionary optimism, not a Pollyanna optimism, not Disney optimism. And I don't mean that in any disparaging way about the Disney operation is a brilliant, wonderful uh, institution. But it's, it's revolutionary optimism that's called for. And that means what John Lewis said about, you know, good trouble. Revolutionary optimism is the kind of optimism that can see a better day in the midst of the darkest day. And in fact, a revolutionary is almost redundant because to be a revolutionary is to believe that things can change, that you can change things. And so that, that revolutionary optimism for an artist is really essential because you have to believe that even with all the great art that has existed, that you have something to give the world as well, that you have something to leave that is as worthy as that which you found when you came here. What do you think in your in your own career most exemplified that revolutionary optimism? What what are your proudest moments? Oh man! Oh yeah! You will. <laughs> thing to ask. What a thing to ask. Uh, well, I'm, I'm in proud of a lot. Well, the first thing that comes to me is the work with August Wilson. To have met him and worked with him and to be one of the actors, uh, one of the men and women who he felt he wanted to trust with his work. The first Broadway show I did was King Henry II when uh, Viola Davis won her first Tony. And uh, and I was fortunate enough to be in Fence's revival that uh, Kenny Leon directed. She and Denzel both won Tonys. And, but but before before even working with all this on Broadway, I, had, I, I did Jitney. And to play Turnbull in Jitney with August from 1996 to 2002, we did that show, and it's arguably uh, the most celebrated American drama at the turn of the century. So as you're, as you're thinking about teaching particularly younger actors, is there advice that you give them today that you m- might not have given them 20 years ago, let's say? Are you sending them out into the world with a different set of tools or, or the same? What I tell them first and foremost is, that the career you seek may elude you, but the craft you seek is in your hands and that you must continue to to work on your craft. You can't think that you've got a BFA or an MFA degree and now you're an actor. You've got to seek and continue to seek to, to grow in your craft. And whether that means being in a class, many times 
it means being a rep company. If you can do, if you if you're fortunate enough to be a company member in a rep company, but we don't have them as much anymore. It's a lot of jobbing in and out, but it takes some years of experience and and doing shows so that your craft is what you can work on. And the career you seek may elude you, but the craft you seek is in your hand. And when that opportunity comes for a career blessing, you've got to be prepared with the craft. And, And then also to go back to the place where they came from uh, when they need to go back and, and, and make a contribution in that community, wherever you came from. There's some students. Like like you did when you went back to Kansas City, you mean? Yeah, yeah. And it's like being in a room with the oldest member of the family and the newest born in the family. If you can be present when the newest baby is held by the oldest member of the family and, and you're in a room with some other family members, you get to see something in context. You get to understand something uh, about that you're, you're, you're never alone. You can go out. You know you belong, first of all. You know you belong. And all your, all your ancestors, you know, everyone, everyone, whether, whether they came from another country and came here or, or whether as far back as you can remember they were here or if they just came here and they don't have a connection all the way back. But every time that newborn is held by the oldest, all the connection is made. And so I, I always try to let them know that they they do belong. So you first belong there and then you have something to give. And you have to have a life in order to bring life to the arts. So get love in your life, too, I tell them. Make sure that uh, that you don't, you know, get so driven that you uh, you force love away from your life. I am so grateful to Stephen for his honesty, and his experience at the Western Missouri Mental Health Center is a reminder of the many challenges artists, particularly artists of color, face in ensuring that their mental health is valued and attended to. And that's what we'll be exploring in our next Art Restart virtual salon this coming September 1st at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's titled Creative, Vulnerable, and Well. It'll be moderated by the subject of our last episode, Terror Rinders, and it'll feature three remarkable artists who have all written or made art about their relationship with their own mental well-being. They'll also be joined by the clinical director of UNCSA's Counseling Services, who will be able to speak to how up-and-coming performing artists can look out for their own psychological well-being in these challenging times. The virtual salon is free and open to everyone, but you must register by visiting uncsa.edu slash art restart and clicking on the register button. Also head over to uncsa.edu slash art restart if you'd like to learn more about Stephen and read a longer version of this interview. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening. <laughs>